God's mercy is unjust. That doesn't work. You see, God being perfect exists all his attributes in perfect harmony, and thus is the problem. Because although God not only loves, but God is love, he's never not love in any circumstance. Because it's, it's an attribute, an immutable, that means unchanging characteristic of God. In the same way that God will never not be holy or never not be righteous, that God will never diminish in those attributes, so God will never not be love. He is love. But here's the issue. He's also just. He's just. He's righteous. And and that's why God hates evil. He hates it. He hates it with a hatred that you can't even begin to sound the depths of. He hates evil. He hates sin. And you say, oh, yes, yes. You know, uh, God hates the sin and loves the sinner. Well, that makes for good songs, but very poor theology. Because you cannot separate the sin from the sinner. And God doesn't throw sin in hell. He throws sinners in hell. Now, just listen for a moment. So that you not think me utterly wrong. Psalms 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You you hate all who do iniquity. Another translation, the authorized, I think, says you hate all who do wrong. Does that describe anybody here in in the audience tonight? You abhor all who do wrong. It doesn't say you abhor sin. It says you abhor those who commit sin. You abhor it. You hate sin and you hate them. Your wrath is manifest against them. And why? He is righteous. He is righteous. Now, you say, well, well you know, I just, I don't, I don't like that. Well, let me give you another text. Psalm 7. God is a righteous judge and a God who is angry every day. How, if I had a dime for every preacher on television that told the people, now the first thing I want to say is God's not angry. Well, the first thing I want to say is that actually he is extremely angry. But now here's the question that is very important. Theological question. If, if you're sitting here going, you know, this is not making a lot of sense. Good, you're thinking. First of all, people will say to me, well, God is love, so how can God hate? Well, let me ask you a question. Do you love Jews? Do you love African Americans? Do you love babies? Do you? Okay. So what what if you come to me and you say, Brother Paul, what do you think about Auschwitz? And I go, that doesn't really bother me. I I don't care. I mean, it doesn't move me or anything. Brother Paul, what do you think about slavery in the colonial period? Oh, you know, it helped the economy. I mean, Brother Paul, what do you think about 60 million babies being killed in abortion in the United States alone? Oh, you know, 
They're an inconvenience. What if I did not react to those horrific things? What would you think about me? You would think I was immoral, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Hopefully. You'd think I was a monster. How can you hear about Auschwitz and all the Jews being slaughtered and tortured and experimented on and not have a sense of justice? How can you think about colonial slavery and not just writhe with anger? I do because I'm righteous, they say. Oh, so you have the right to do that and God doesn't? So you have the right to be angry and declare war you, who I just described in Romans 3, you have the right to stick out your chest and say, I will do justice. I hate everything that is evil. I love righteousness. But the moment I tell you that's exactly what God does, you go, no, I don't like a God like that. Think about it. I was preaching on Noah one time. A lady said, that's not my God. And I said, no, ma'am, it is certainly not. <laughs> you see, what you need to understand, there are certain, I have relationships all over the world. I sometimes feel like I'm more Latin than I am American. I've... I've lived so long in, Latin, in the Latin world. When I'm in Africa, I just, so many years now, 20-some years of, of just, when I saw the Afghani Christians and we trying to rescue them out of the hell that they're in right now, buying them like they were cattle. I, I love them, but I also get angry when I see me, pole washer, a sinner, but there's something in me, it's called the image of God, and when I see these things, I get angry because I love those people. I want you to know something. God is a God who is angry every day as we slaughter children. As we live as though He were not. As there is no fear and no understanding. As we are vipers and our children are like hatched vipers. As the world tumbles down into an insanity and an immorality. As it declares war on God. As we murder the innocent. As we destroy virtue. As we take a knife and stab it right into the heart of everything that is beautiful. As we vomit out our iniquity. Yes, God hates. How does it work? Imagine this. God in His justice looking at humanity. God in His justice looking at you. Do you realize that if I could pull out your heart right now and put it on a CD or some sort of video player and show it, every thought you've ever thought, even what you're thinking right now, and play it before this congregation of people, you would run out of here and you'd never show your face here again. 
everything God knows. And it's as though the justice of God is crying out for your damnation. And with one hand, the mercy of God is holding back his wrath. And with the other hand, the mercy of God is beckoning you to come to salvation before it is too late. But I can assure you, my friend, one day the offer will be taken back. And there will be no offer of salvation. And the hand of God's mercy will be withdrawn and there will be nothing left for you throughout eternity except the wrath of Almighty God, the holy hatred of God against all your evil. You say, well, how then can we be saved? The Puritans would have said it this way. How can the mercy of God and the righteousness of God be reconciled? Now, I want to take you on a little Bible lesson. And I want you to see this problem for yourself very clearly. First of all, go to Exodus 34. Now listen. Exodus 34. This is one of the greatest revelations of God in the Old Testament. God comes down and speaks for himself. It says in verse 5 of chapter 34 of Exodus, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, with Moses, and he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands. So far, so good. This is beautiful. And then he goes on, it even gets better who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. He's not trying to give us a, a study in Hebrew here. He's heaping one term upon another to say that this God forgives all types and kinds of sin. But then look. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Hold it. That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? He forgives all types and kinds of sin, but everyone who is guilty of sin, they will be punished. They will. How do you work that out? He forgives all types and kinds of sin. Everyone who has ever committed a sin will be punished. And punished precisely, justly, and you say, how does that work? Here's what you need to see. God will punish every sin that has ever been committed. He will punish every sin you have ever committed. And there's one of two ways in which he'll do it. He will punish every sin you have ever committed as you spend an eternity in hell cast out of the presence of God and positively suffering the full force of His wrath. That's one way in which He will punish every sin you've ever committed. But there's another way. For those who trust in Christ, He punished every one of their sins on His Son when He hung on Calvary and He crushed His own Son under the full force of the wrath that you and I would deserve throughout an eternity in hell. Your sins are going to be punished, every one of them. My sins are going to be punished, every one of them. The question is, how do you want to do this? And go to hell throughout all eternity. Or look 
to the one lifted up like a serpent in the wilderness, bearing your sin and crushed under the holy hatred of God in your place. I want you to go now to just another text. I want you to think about, look at Proverbs 17, 15. It says, speaking of, it's speaking just of a proverb, and he says, he, any person who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Now look at this text, look at it. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Abomination translates a Hebrew word that's probably the strongest that we have. It is, it is a hor- horrific word. It's, it's disgusting, vile, abomination. But look what it's saying. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. But what do we sing about every Sunday? God justifies the wicked. But God's saying anyone who justifies the wicked is an abomination to him. So how can God justify the wicked? Do you see that? That's Paul's question in Romans 3. How can God justify the wicked when anyone who justifies the wicked to God is an abomination? How can he do it? How can he do it? And isn't that what we sing about, isn't it? I was in sin and God justified me and we all shout hallelujah. But the Bible says anyone who justifies the wicked is an abomination to God. So how can God justify the wicked and still be holy? Let me give you an an illustration. Let's say you go home tonight and someone has slaughtered your entire family. And the murderer is wringing the life out of that person. Your, Your youngest sibling as you come through the door. You throw the murderer to the floor. You tie him up. You call the police. Everyone in your town, your neighborhood, comes to the court meeting later because they all loved your family. They knew your family. This criminal is now standing before the judge. He's guilty. And the judge looks down and looks at the criminal and says, I am slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Therefore, I pardon you. What are you going to say? What is the entire neighborhood going to say? Are they going to go, oh, what a beautiful, beautiful mercy here. No, you're going to be fiercely angry. You're going to say the judge is far more corrupt than the man who murdered your family. You're going to write the president. You're going to write Congress. You're going to go to the news. You're going to say this man is so vile. Well, then how can God pardon you and me? You see, there's the problem. If he simply pardons you and pardons me, he is no longer just. Now go to one more text, Micah. Chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity, who passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in loving kindness. He will, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depth of the sea. So here we have it. We have these people who have sinned and deserve the justice of God, and yet now they're singing. 
that God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and he's going to forgive them. But how's he going to do it? Look what it says. He'll tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you'll cast our sins into the depth of the sea. So we get these Christian songs, right? And they go, you know, God has, he's tread our sins under his feet. Hallelujah. He's cast our sins into the sea. Hallelujah. This is fun. This is wonderful. You don't understand anything. You think he took your sin, threw it on the ground and stomped it? You think he took your sin, rolled it up in a ball and threw it into the sea? Is that what you think? He took your sin and he threw it on his son and he trampled his son down under his own wrath. He took your sin and he put it on his son and he threw his son into the sea of his holy hatred against evil. And his son suffered every penalty, everything you deserved until he could cry out, it is finished. Do you not see when Jesus is crossing with his disciples and a great storm comes up and then he's sleeping in the bow of the boat. Do you remember someone else who was sleeping in the bow of a boat? Jonah. So Jonah is a prophet who's rebellious in Israel. He's in a boat sleeping and the judgment of God comes. You see, you need to understand this New Testament text. You can't understand it apart from Jonah. So these disciples are going out across the sea with Jesus. They're being told by the religious leaders of the day that this man is a disobedient prophet. He gets in a ship and goes to sleep just like Jonah. A storm comes up. And I believe those disciples were probably thinking, are the Pharisees right? Is he a Jonah? We're going to die. What does Jesus do? He walks out and goes, peace. He could calm that storm with a wave of his hand, but he couldn't take away wrath with a wave of his hand. On the cross, he threw himself into the sea of God's raging anger and righteous hatred against your evil. And he was swallowed up by it. Gives a whole new meaning to those songs about casting sin into the sea, doesn't it? Now, let's go back to our text. And I know I've gone... Well, let's just keep going. Now, here's what I want you to see. Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. What is a propitiation? It is a sacrifice that is given that satisfies justice and removes wrath. Now, I want you to notice something. It says about Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. Why did God display his son publicly on that tree? Why didn't he put away sin in the wilderness or somewhere else? Why was Christ hung up over the religious center of the universe, Jerusalem? As the British say, God placarded him. 
billboarded him, placed him on a cross. He displayed him. Why did God publicly display Christ? Because he was proving something. Something that if you get a grasp of, it will change your view of the gospel forever. God was showing something. God was having to correct an idea. He is redeeming, but he's revealing. So why did he present him that way? It says, this was to demonstrate his righteousness. Whose righteousness? God. Why does God have to demonstrate that he's righteous? Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. What's it talking about? So just by way of illustration, Adam and Eve fall in the garden. Perfect justice would have ended it there. You sinned, you die now. Imagine the accuser, not only of the brethren, but the accuser of God. Adam and Eve fall. And right after that, in 3.15, we have the Proto-Evangelicum, the first promise of the gospel. Someone, a seed, born of woman, will come. Rectify the whole situation, defeat Satan where he stands. Can you imagine Satan? Where's your justice, God? They eat of that tree, they die. You give them the promise of salvation. They deserve to die. Justice demands they die. Just imagine throughout the whole Old Testament. You know the big ethical problem with Noah and the flood? Satan would say, Noah should have died. Noah deserved death just as much as anyone else, and that's true. Noah was a sinner. He proved it later, didn't he? They deserve to die. Where is your justice? I see no justice here. Oh, Abraham. Your friend, he put his wife in jeopardy. He did not believe you. Where's your justice? Where's your righteousness? I sin, I fall. Righteousness, justice on me. Where's your justice with these, these things of dirt? Oh, and Israel? Israel, your people, they worshiped me in the wilderness. You said so. Kill them. Oh, and David, David, your precious David, a man after your own heart. He's an adulterer and a murderer. Where's your justice? Where is it? You see, from your pitiful little point of view, where you've raised yourself up to be some sort of little God, you sit in judgment of God because you're in disagreement with his judgments. Heaven, which has a clearer view, is in disagreement with his mercy. How can you show mercy when justice demands that all these die? 
And then one day God answered the question. Now, just for drama's sake, I will. God is sitting on his throne. And he calls Satan front and center. Satan, do you want to know how I can give a promise of hope to Adam and Eve? How I can show mercy without violation of my justice? Do you want to know how I can save Noah and his lot from the flood and still be a righteous God? Do you want to know how I can call Abraham my friend? Do you want to know how I can call David my son and forgive all their trespasses? you want to know? All right. Look to Jerusalem and look to that cross where my son now dies for them all. Do you see that? Do you see that? Say, we're saved by faith. Your faith means nothing if there's not atonement for your sin. If justice is not satisfied, you doesn't matter with your faith. Do you understand me? Sin has to be put away. God's justice has to be satisfied. And that's what happened on that tree. So we have Christ in the garden and he cries out three times, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. What was in the cup? I heard, I hear these preachers, especially at Easter. Oh my gosh, how can you listen to this stuff? They talk about the nails and the crown and the, and the spear and the beatings and all that was an aspect of the revelation of the wrath of God upon God's Son. But what you need to understand, what was in the cup? Listen to this. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, thus he says to me, take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Do you want to know what was in the cup? The wrath of Almighty God against you was in the cup. And against me was in the cup. That's what was in the cup. For those hours of darkness, why darkness? He wanted to display him, and then all of a sudden, darkness. Don't think it was a cloudy day. I believe it's the same darkness that you would have seen in Egypt when a man could not see his hand in front of his face. Why? Because Christ could have no consolation as he hung upon that tree. He could not look out at even the women mourning. John from afar. He was shut up all to himself. There has never been a man so alone, so shut up as billow after billow of world-destroying wrath of God falls upon his head. Have you never read, it pleased the Lord to crush him? What is the cross? God crushing his son under his wrath as his son bears your sin, as his son hangs in your place. 
And it went on and on and on. He was shut up in that as billow after billow of the wrath of God. And I believe that no one, archangel, man, no matter, no one but the mind of God will ever comprehend what Christ suffered on that tree in that hour, those hours of darkness. When he drank the last drop, he said, it is finished. And he turned over the cup. And not one drop came forth. Do you realize this? There is nothing left of the wrath of God for those who find their hiding place in Christ. There is nothing left of anger. There's nothing left of wrath. Even when he disciplines the Christian, he does so in love. Every sin, past, present, and future, paid for by your elder brother, by your champion, God's champion. He died bloody, death and he paid it all God having done that do you actually want to hold up your works to him on the day of judgment and say I need not your son I'll do fine on my own hold up your religion your priest your preacher Really? Drunks, drug addicts, prostitutes, thieves and murderers can find a way to heaven through Jesus Christ. But for the self-righteous, they need to be told they will not enter through the eye of that needle with one shred of self-righteousness on their back. It's through Christ and Christ alone. He died. That is the controlling thing. He died for me. He died for you. But he didn't stay dead. Up. I love that. Up from the grave, he arose. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions, was also raised because of our transgression, albeit an extremely difficult text. But at least a core idea here is that, well, let me put it this way. All these questions about whether God is righteous or how can God be righteous and merciful at the same time? Christ answered that question on the cross. In one sense, he vindicated God, didn't he? All those accusations throughout all those centuries that God wasn't righteous, Christ vindicated God when he died on that tree. And when God raised him from the dead, God vindicated his son. And he proved something to you. When God raised him from the dead, he was telling you, every one of your sins are atoned for. Everyone. And this is proof. I raised him from the dead. 
Your debt is finished. I look back on my life before Christ and I wish I had not been what I was. And I wish I had not committed the sins and the crimes that I committed against a holy God and against people. But in another way, I almost applaud that I was vile. I appreciate it. I'll appreciate it if it makes me see how much I need Jesus. And that I have nothing but Him. We'll get to the closing. I want to read to you one of my favorite passages. The Puritans use this, the Reformers. It was messianic according to the, the rabbis. Christ is raised from the dead. And 40 days later, he ascends. The man, God, yes, but the man, Christ Jesus, bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh, my brother, ascends. And he reaches the gates of glory, the gates of heaven. And this is what he says. Lift up, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, old ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Spurgeon and others have said, at his voice, all of heaven runs to the parapet and looks over the wall of heaven, saying, who is this who dares command heaven? What man has ever made it this far? What man dares to lay his hand on this latch? And Jesus responds. They say to him, who is the king of glory? And Jesus responds, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And at that moment, he opened those gates, not by grace, but by his own virtue, his own righteousness. He had triumphed where everyone had failed. Adam failed. Every descendant of Adam failed. But then comes the Messiah, the Christ, the King, and he prevails. Not only did he obey God perfectly in every aspect of the law, but he did away with sin through his own death. And he rose again from the dead. And he ascended up into heaven. And he commanded those gates to be opened for us. And when he walked through that door, all of heaven crashed to the floor. And he ascends up the steps of the throne of God, the man, Christ, Jesus, bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh. And he sits down at the right hand of God, and I could suppose God would look over and say, It is finished. And the son says, Father, it is finished indeed. You see, really? Could there be anything greater? Could there be anything greater than this? Not a fairy tale, not a myth. A historical event. 
I have sinned enough today to cast me out. But my brother has prevailed. And he's prevailed for his people. And one day he will return. He will return with a shout, with a trumpet. What should you do? If you do not know him, what should you do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Repent of your sins and believe. How do I know if I've repented? Do you see your sin? Do you see it? Has all hope in self-righteousness drained away from you? Do you see yourself as condemned and do you hate that which condemns you? Do you want to be free from it? Shake it off like shackles. Wash it off like filth. Then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust that what he did on that tree is sufficient for you. Acknowledge that you contributed nothing to your salvation except your sin. And that he did it all. That you cling to him. I have told people, I say, run to him. I say, but I have no strength to run. Walk to him. I have no strength to walk. Crawl to him. I have no strength to crawl. Then just fall. Fall upon him. Fall upon him. Trust in Christ. I need to retire you, but... This is the pain of the preacher. It drives him mad. It makes him apocalyptic. That I know so little about this glorious thing, but even what I know I can't say in words. I suppose that not even the words of angels will ever be able to describe what Christ is and what Christ has done. Oh, believe in Him. And you young people, do not waste your life. Don't waste your life. Follow him. I am now 61. I have lived in him 40 years. I regret nothing that I lost in his name. I only regret everything I kept for myself. Trust in him. Serve him. Serve him. Know his gospel. Preach it, but most importantly, believe in it. Believe in it. Believe. Trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Son. Oh God, His beauty, it almost hurts. His glory is so great. Please, God, please, please, please work among this people. 
encourage the, the mature, the godly to go on with you, to press on to know the Lord. Encourage the young ones, Lord, to follow, that the lost might be saved. Oh God, open their hearts, take out their heart of stone and replace